from the newsroom of the Washington Post. This is Cleve Lutzen with the Washington Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with the Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, June 11th. Today, introducing a new podcast from the opinion section at The Post and learning the secret to superhuman strength. So, James, I know you, and I think a lot of people who love audio from The Post know you, but uh, can you just introduce yourself and say who you are and what you do? Absolutely. My name is James Holman. I'm a columnist for The Post, an opinion columnist. And for the last six years, I was on the news side and I wrote something called The Daily 202. And uh, for post audio listeners, I hosted the the morning audio briefing called The Big Idea. And I just want to say, I mean, I know that you've done a lot of things in your career and the audio, the, the morning briefing was uh, The Daily 202 was just one of those things. But when you wrapped up your time as the host of this podcast, I heard from so many people that were like, where is James? Why has James left us? When is James coming back. We want more James. So uh, I think that speaks to how big of a fan club you have. Well, I, I it, thank you, Martina. That's very kind. And and uh, I always told people, just listen to post reports. They have everything and more that you could ever need. But it is it, it was really fun because it did feel like this kind of when you're doing as you do a daily you know, every weekday podcast, you do sort of it's just this running conversation. And we're all listening to the news together. And I just during COVID, especially there were so many people who were isolated from their friends and even their family and their certainly their coworkers. And so we were kind of tackling this, one of the biggest stories ever together. So James, the reason that I am talking to you today is because you have just launched a new podcast. It is called Please Go On. Um, and it is from the opinion section at the Post, which I think not everyone really understands like how a newspaper like ours works, but you have the news side, which is where I am, um, where you're sort of talking through reporting and um the way that we do interviews, you know, I can't always express an opinion, but then there is the opinion side that you have now just made the jump to. And you are writing your own column and also talking to other people about their columns, which seems like a very exciting kind of difference in in what your day to day is like. Yeah, Martine, it really is. I think a lot of people kind of just assume that everyone is together and that we're all kind of and we obviously are one big organization, uh, but the opinion staff works on the eighth floor and, and most of the people in the newsroom work on the seventh floor. And there is kind of a separation. And it is funny because my entire career, I've been a straight news person. And so now for the first time, my editor is always saying, express more of an opinion. This isn't an opinion. This is an analysis. Hmm. What's your, what do you think about this? One of the things I discovered when I came over to the opinion team, there's so much content. There's so many people, there's a ton of staff columnists, people who, you know, a lot of household names, Jen Rubin, George Will, people that are well known, Hmm. but they run so many op-eds uh, every day, the you know op-ed is the, it's an old-fashioned newspaper term for opposite the editorial page, uh, and but what what it means is it's a it's basically a guest column by someone who doesn't work for us but is has written in and and the cool thing about this podcast, this new Please Go On podcast, is each week we're going to pick one op-ed that we feel like is especially important, insightful, or inspiring, and sometimes we're going to have household names. Our first 
guest is Vice President Kamala Harris. But a lot of times I think we're going to be talking to people that you probably never heard of. One of the guests that we've talked to, his name's Robert Barton. Me and a lot of my friends were locked up as children. We redeemed, irredeemable, incorrigible, super predators, the worst of the worst, unfit to ever frequent society again. He was in the car just a few days after he turned 16 when someone else in the car shot someone fatally in the drive-by shooting. And Robert Barton was sentenced to life in prison. Hmm. And he's in a Florida prison. And he wrote an op-ed for The Post in response to this recent Supreme Court decision about juvenile justice. Basically, I got indoctrinated into, you know, jail culture when... Conversely, if I probably would have went to a Jew and I would said that you all get received some type of help that would have been able to help me, then I wouldn't have, you know, adapted to the environment that I was placed in. Um, not making excuses for my seven things and that. So that's pretty much why I wrote the article because I don't want to see other juveniles go through the same thing I'm going through. And so we had a fascinating conversation about the criminal justice system and how prison changes you. And again, Robert Barton, not a name people know, but it, it, it shines a light into something that is a really important issue. And I also get the sense that you're looking to talk to people who sometimes make a splash with their op-eds, sometimes because they are very controversial or a lot of people disagree with them. And I, I wonder if you could talk me through that, like w- why you would want uh, interviews with people that a lot of folks think are wrong. It's such a good point. And and I think it really gets at what the whole goal of the Post's opinion pages is about. We have an editorial board that is kind of the official editorial position of the Post, but there really is a desire. There's really a, an emphasis on making sure that uh, there's people on both parties who are writing, that people from all walks of life are writing, that there's a diverse mix of uh, both racially and, and gender diversity uh, to capture all of these many perspectives in our polyglot society. And I think that a lot of times one of the goals here, Martine, is to help people maybe maybe invite people to change how they think about issues. Hmm. You know, I think the other thing that we really pride ourselves on on the opinion page is to have takes that are hmm. surprising and not just sort of obvious or reflexive or were even partisan, but sometimes you have interesting people saying surprising things. Well, what are examples of that, of the kinds of takes that you've seen in the opinion section that you're like, oh, this is this is not what I thought this person was going to say? So like we've had like the head of the NAACP and Charles Koch wrote something about criminal justice reform. And I've written a lot about the Koch network and as a political reporter. And so that's sort of a, a fascinating perspective and how they ended up coming together to work together or maybe... Sometimes you have people who will break with what their party is saying, who will say, I think my party, you know, we had a, a great op-ed. And this wasn't a surprise to anyone who follows the news closely, but Liz Cheney recently wrote a piece for The Post mm. explaining why she wasn't going to capitulate to Trump and or why she wasn't going to stop talking about what happened on January 6th. And that's the kind of piece that is like actually news in and of itself to hear exactly. a member of Congress at the center of this firestorm sort of speaking a little bit more candidly about what she's going through. Yeah. And so people like Liz Cheney, I think we can have really good conversation. I don't agree with Liz Cheney on a lot of things, but I think that she has a really interesting and important perspective to add. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think that the, the, those are the kinds of voices that we want to elevate. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that the debut episode of Please Go On is an interview with Vice President Harris, which is 
a very big get. Not everyone gets to interview the vice president. (laughs) So congratulations. Thank you. Tell me a little bit about why you wanted to talk to her and what the opinion was that she had that you felt like was worth coming back to talk more about and take a second look at. Vice President Harris wrote this op-ed for the Post in February about the basically the exodus of women from the workforce during COVID. Where we started this, you know, this year when we came in, when the president and I looked at the numbers and all of these parents, you know, women and men who were at the mercy of, uh, of, of a system that really was not giving them the support they need to be able to work. They ha- and, and for those people who could not work from home because their job was not such that they could you know, get on a Zoom all day, um, it became a- an incredible burden. And so Vice President Harris's op-ed was saying this is a national emergency that millions of women are out of the workforce who were in it before COVID. And this is going to be one of my top priorities as vice president and one of the administration's top focuses. And so basically, four months later, our conversation was, how is it going? We're in June and we are still looking at as many as 10 million fewer jobs in the economy than at the eve of the pandemic. And that's why I say it's not completely over, but it's certainly not raging as it was at the height of the pandemic. But we've still got some work to do. What else surprised you from what Vice President Harris told you? Yeah, so the, the one of the more interesting pieces was the, the the economy has, you know, kind of stagnated along, for lack of a better word. Uh, but Republicans right now blame labor shortages. They say that a lot of places aren't able to find workers because you can make more money from not working and collecting unemployment benefits than you can by going to work. And so, you know, and and I actually know a lot of stories too, of people who, you know, the uh, Dunkin' Donuts franchise who can't get people to come work the morning shift making donuts because their margins are so low and they can't afford to really raise wages that much. But at the same time, if you're a worker, you can get $300 supplemental unemployment benefit, and then you can get money from the state and, and on and on. So why work if you can make more not working? And I asked her about that. Do you think there's any validity to those concerns or are they off base? Well, let me just tell you, I I firmly believe based on my life's experience and my career, Americans like to work and they want to work. And it is misguided to assume that when people aren't working, it's because they don't have a work ethic or value the importance of hard work and the dignity of work. Interestingly, the very day after we conducted that interview, the White House basically shifted subtly, but they shifted their position. And President Biden said that we are going to let uh, these supplemental unemployment benefits expire at the beginning of September. And then White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said that it's that Republican governors in about 25 now Republican governors have said they're going to cut off these unemployment benefits early before the White House was talking about suing them to stop them from doing that. And then the White House said, actually, if they want to do that, they have every right to. Hmm. So that is a shift from what she was saying. And it was sort of interesting because, you know, I think she sounded very heartfelt about it, but it it is a position that I think has increasingly become untenable because a lot of the business community, including a lot of major Democratic donors, have started to express this frustration. Now, there are a lot of people, progressive people who say, well, they should just 
pay higher wages. And, and there is evidence that they're doing that, which is a good thing. And I think some people would argue that that, that is the reason why having a livable uh, wage as the unemployment benefit is helpful for everybody because it does put more pressure on employers to start paying more or having other benefits that that lure people back into the job market. Absolutely. I couldn't I couldn't agree more. And that's, you know, the, it's been fascinating. Chipotle uh, this week announced that they're raising their prices modestly, but they're also raising their wages. And uh, and so it was it's fascinating because Republicans are attacking Democrats and saying Democrats are responsible for higher Chipotle prices. But it's like <laughs> the, well, their, their workers are getting paid more money. You know, that's a, the, if you're going to be a working class party, you got to look out for those employees. I have to say that is a very, I, I would I would find that a very powerful Republican platform of like, keep Chipotle guacamole at $2 extra, no more, we can't afford it. All right, exactly. I mean, that's literally my inbox. <laughs> the Republicans are saying that. And, uh, and, and so these are live issues. This isn't just mm-hmm. kind of an academic, abstract discussion about women in the workforce. These are real things that are, you know, affecting real people's lives. And one of the things I hope to, capture with this new podcast is kind of compassionately capture the humanity of these politicians and who are making these, these decisions that are incredibly consequential Mm -hmm. uh, and to try to humanize not just the policymakers, but also the, the policies that they're enacting. Well, I think people should definitely go and listen to your podcast. Can you tell them where you can find Please Go On and also how they can find you if they have ideas for people to invite on your show? That's a a great question. You can find and follow the podcast Please Go On wherever you get them. Uh, Apple, Stitcher, the others. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, whatever, you know, like all, all those apps, Spotify, Spotify, you know, WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. We really would love feedback to make this as good as we can. And so you can email me directly at james.holman, H-O-H-M-A-N-N at washpost.com. Uh, and I, I really do respond. To, I try to respond to every email. James Homan is a columnist for The Post and the host of our new opinion podcast, Please Go On, produced by Julie Deppenbrock. This segment was made by Ted Muldoon. This summer, we're doing a series of interviews, talking to artists, performers, creative thinkers, people that aren't necessarily in the news, but who we just want to hear from because they're smart and funny and insightful and interesting. I am Alison Bechtel. I am a cartoonist, and I am here to talk about my newest book, The Secret to Superhuman Strength. Over the years, Alison Bechtel has experimented with many forms of fitness. (laughs) Downhill skiing, jogging, karate. Like a lot, a lot. Weightlifting, yoga, cycling, rollerblading, backcountry skiing, Nordic skiing, workout programs like Insanity, that crazy high-intensity interval training workout, Qigong, slacklining, spinning, rock climbing. I'm not a real rock climber, but I took a rock climbing class as I was writing the book, thinking it might be helpful. Um, I took a trapeze class, too. And a few years ago, she started to think about why she was doing all this exercise. 
what do you tell people your book is about? My book is about transformation. It's about my own lifelong efforts at improving myself, trying to become less self-centered, trying to become more <laughs> evolved and enlightened. And uh, I do that through the lens of my exercise life, but it's not really about just physical fitness. That's just kind of my, just a way in. I should talk about where the title of the book comes from, The Secret to Superhuman Strength, is is an ad in a comic book that I saw when I was a little kid. One of those bodybuilding ads. You probably don't remember those, but when I was little, it was like all comic books had these Charles Atlas ads and these, these big, beefy weightlifter guys. And they were encouraging little kids to send off for pamphlets that would show you how to get bigger or weight gain drinks or funny, like exercise devices. And I was fascinated with those as a little kid. And I wanted to be big and strong like that. And one day I sent away for this ad that promised me the secret to superhuman strength. And when it came in the mail, it was this very disappointing (laughs) martial arts handbook. But I loved the idea that there was such a thing as superhuman strength out there to be had. So I kept sort of looking for it over the course of my life. And what were the different ways that you looked for it? You know, I discovered calisthenics when I was 14 or so. My mother had this exercise book and I just decided I was going to do these exercises. And I really could feel my body getting stronger as I did the prescribed exercises. And that was an amazing sensation to think that I could really, you know, make this change happen in my body. And that kind of led to taking up jogging when I was a little older. And then I learned that I could just go running and I could run pretty far, you know, I could run long distances and that made me feel kind of superhuman. The book is not just about Allison's history with exercise. It's also about how other people have thought about moving their bodies and getting outdoors over many decades. Like when Allison was a kid in the 60s and 70s, women were not encouraged to exercise to get stronger. I mean, I feel like exercise has changed a lot over these past few decades, and it's it's especially changed for women. I mean, not so much that people are doing things differently, but they're certainly talking about it more. You know, exertion is good. Muscles are good in a way that they really weren't when I was young. Like, I mean, they were frowned on. You know, everyone was like worried you were going to get muscles or you were going to get calluses, for God's sakes. Um, so that has really changed, you know, the sports bra has been such an amazing boon to humankind. <laughs> Women couldn't move terribly freely without proper support. So the sports bra enabled women to move around more freely, but also that amazing moment when Brandy Chaston tore off her jersey at that soccer tournament. Chastain will take it. Go! That you could be not topless, but almost topless and muscular and, you know, flaunting your vigorous sports body. Like that was such a breakthrough. And that just was not the world I grew up in. That I've watched all of that evolve and it's been really amazing. 
And Allison actually goes all the way back to the mid-1800s, when thinkers like Ralph Waldo Emerson and Margaret Fuller were writing about their relationships to movement and nature. What I love about them is their how into nature they all were and how they sort of sought out these ecstatic experiences out of doors. Emerson and Margaret Fuller both had these experiences outside of feeling their selves just kind of disappear, which reminded me a lot of a, an experience I had, a admittedly drug-induced experience <laughs> uh, when I was young. But I felt like this connection to them, like we, I understood something that they had experienced about the self in relationship to the universe, and that was exciting. Yeah, there there are all these moments where you kind of talk about having a, a feeling of ecstasy or of kind of being outside of your own, I don't know if it's outside of your own body or outside of your own head, but just like feeling feeling the flow and that you can be doing karate or in spin class or doing yoga and that there is something there that is comparable to these profound experiences that these people from the 1800s were having. Yeah. And it's a connection that I don't see made very often. Yeah, I get a little hit of that from working out, you know, from going for a run, going for a long bike ride. I can get a little bit into that altered state. It's also the feeling you get when you're in a creative groove. Mm. And these people would feel that then. Well, well, for people who haven't had that feeling or don't have that type of relationship to physical activity or the outdoors, like, how do you describe that sensation of what it's like to be like in the zone, either when you're working out or even when you're in the middle of your own work? For me, it's this feeling of myself, the way I normally think of it, you know, like this person with these plans and ideas and history, it just recedes. It just um, goes into the background and the thing that I'm doing comes to the foreground. I'm just running. I'm not me. I am running. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. I am mm -hmm. drawing. You talk about how early on in your, not childhood, but I guess teenagehood, that you discovered running and the fact that you could run a certain distance and then run further and run, run further than that. Um, and then running kind of falls away as a big part of your life. But you have recently come back to running, yeah. which I think a lot of people can relate to uh, having kind of used this as an opportunity to like come back to uh, different activities that they used to do when they were younger. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I I got an injury in my 30s. I hurt my knee and it just became painful to run, so I stopped doing it. I did other stuff. I skied and biked and inline skated, things that didn't have impact. And I thought that was fine. I was just going to not be a runner anymore. But then, and this this intersected in a weird way with my drinking habits. I in in midlife about the time I stopped running, I, I started drinking. I, I just became anxious and I was starting to write this memoir about my father, which turned out to be my, my book Fun Home, which was very challenging to write. And I just was dealing with a lot of anxiety and I felt like, oh, having some wine at dinner helps me to calm down. But my drinking just sort of crept up and became mm -hmm. a habit over the years. I was really locked into my evening wine. Like I couldn't not have it. Mm -hmm. And I sort of 
explain that, rationalize that as just, well, this is just how I cope. <laughs> I'm, I'm very stressed out. This is just how I manage. But when I started running, when I was about six years ago, when I was 54, I found that I was less anxious. I'd forgotten how amazing running was at just really wiping my mind clear, at, at calming me down. And I found that, that like I just didn't have as much tension in my body or as much anxiety in my head. And I was really able eventually, after increasing my mileage to a certain point, to really let go of that daily habit. Hmm. Actually, I feel like this was fueled by reading your book. But last week I went on a, um, on a run through Rock Creek Park. And I'm a slow runner and I don't go that far. But this is like a little bit farther than I usually go. And I just remember having this feeling of being like a mile away from my house and being like, oh, I'm almost there, but I'm so tired. And like, I have all this stuff to do. And, and then suddenly feeling like all of that fell away. And that like, time sort of falls away and yeah. being like, there is no, like, there's no before this. There's no after this. There's no dog that needs to be walked. There's no apartment. There's no boyfriend. There's no podcast. There's no nothing. It's just like this and the river and the fact that I'm breathing hard and that my hip aches a little bit because I'm getting older, but also like the the sun and the sounds of the trees. And like, that is the only existence that I know or will ever know. And it feels like you sort of lose that that sensation of of time yes. and that that's the the feeling that is that is worth capturing. Yes, Martine, that's the thing. I forgot that's like the key part of that flow state is time stops. You're just in the present and that's that's the most amazing feeling. Yeah. And it's so hard to do unless, you know, for me running is a way to sort of trick yourself into it because you're you're in so much physical distress. <laughs> you just have to like <laughs> let go and and be in the moment. Alison Bechtel is a cartoonist. Her new book is called The Secret to Superhuman Strength. The story was produced by Emma Talkoff. Listen out for arts and culture interviews like this one on upcoming episodes of the podcast this summer. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's episode was mixed by Renny Svernovsky. Our executive producer is Maggie Penman. Our senior producer is Rena Flores. Our editors are Alexis Diao and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music. Our producers are Lena Muhammad and Jordan Marie Smith. Ariel Plotnik and Renny Svernovsky are associate producers. Sabi Robinson and Emma Talkoff are assistant producers. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post.